Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Sorry about that. I'm I'm booting up. Let's just see what John has told us up to this point. In chapter 1, he tells us that Jesus is the Son of God, the Word made flesh. John's position in the first chapter is that a divine being has come among us. Now, how would you prove that? Well, in John chapter 2, he shows him to be the creator as he turns water into wine. And then he comes to the temple of God and says, this is my father's house, and he shows himself to be God. In chapters 3 and 4, there is Nicodemus, who is a religious ruler. There is a Samaritan woman who is on the lowest rung of the moral ladder. And then there's a Galilean official who has a dying son. All three of them are clueless as it comes to salvation. And all three are brought to their place of need. One spiritually, one morally, and one physically. Then in chapter 5, we see that persecution begins, and the death knell begins on Christ. In chapter 5, persecution begins, and in chapter 6, there is perplexity. Jesus tells them that he is the bread of life, but he is not there mainly to be physical bread and blessing, but something far greater. He will give his body as for the life of the world. If you were doing a play on the Gospel of John, in chapters 7 through 10, you would never have to move your set. In 7 through 10, we are back in Jerusalem, and we're going to stay right there. 7, 8, 9, and 10 could have been the longest chapter in your New Testament. We could have had about a 200-verse chapter. We're going to see Jerusalem divide right and left over Jesus. And that teaches us that you cannot remain neutral on who he is. When it comes to Jesus, none of us can be Switzerland. Look at verse 70 with me. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, For it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Jesus says that he chose a devil. But I thought Jesus was perfect. How could he make such a colossal mistake? In this choosing, he is not referring to election to salvation, but rather selection to apostleship. He chose 12 men, one of whom was to betray him in the most unthinkable way. After Judas had been dismissed in the upper room the last night or the night of the Last Supper, then the Lord spoke to the remaining 11 as being chosen for salvation. And he said to them, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, I may give to you. But if this is so, why did he choose Judas? Why not another? The first and easiest answer to that question is that Jesus chose Judas because the scriptures foretold it. John 17, 12 tells us that, for it says, 
When I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. This reference is from Psalm 41 verse 9. Jesus chose Judas to fulfill these passages. But to say this is to only push the question back one step further. For now we must ask, but why did God call such scriptures to be written? Why did God ordain Judas to be among the 12 disciples in the first place? When Jesus came to earth, he had professed, Here I am, I have come to do your will, O God. Now this will was written in the volume of the book, and it included the choice of Judas as one who would betray him. Now this was a trial for Jesus beyond any doubt. Judas was associated with Jesus for three years of his ministry, yet Judas was the devil's tool. Even when Jesus retired along with the twelve to escape the worst of his critics, Judas was right there with him. Still, Jesus did not hesitate to do what the Father demanded. Second, the choice of Judas provided an impartial witness to the moral excellency of who Christ was. A.W. Pink observes, His father, his forerunner, his saved apostles bore testimony to his perfections. But lest it should be thought that these were biased witnesses, God saw to it that an enemy should also bear witness. Here was a man that was a devil, a man who was in the closest possible touch with the life of Christ, both public and private, a man who would have seized eagerly on the slightest flaw if it had been possible to find one, but it was not. That's good insight. As a matter of fact, in the end, Judas will bemoan, I have betrayed innocent blood. His was the unsought testimony of an impartial witness. Now in this we have an admonition. Think about this. The presence of Jesus supplies us with a solemn warning. A person may experience the closest possible contact with Jesus and still not come to him for salvation. He may hear Christ's teachings, witness great miracles, observe the changed lives of others who have yielded themselves to Christ, and yet not be born again. Judas was with Jesus, but he did not believe. Perhaps you're like him. You may have been raised in a godly home. You may have heard much preaching. You may have seen others believe, perhaps even in your own family. But you have not believed personally. Their faith will not save you. You must believe. So here we have two men brought together in the space of just three verses, Peter and Judas. One made a great confession, and with the other, we have a disturbing revelation. I wonder which one most characterizes us. Both were with Jesus. Both gave evidence of a genuine interest in religion. But with one, it was real. He was there because of Jesus. The other 
was there only for himself and what he could derive from that relationship. Now, make it even more personal. What are we into Christianity for? Is it for Jesus or is it just for ourselves? I cannot promise you that if you come to God out of a genuine love for the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will find the road easy. The company is usually good, but the road can be rocky. And in the end, it leads to a cross. Nevertheless, I can promise that Jesus is even more than you might hope for or even realize. And beyond the cross, there is glory. Jesus uses interchange to highlight yet another truth. From Peter's perspective, all 12 disciples chose to believe and follow Christ. And Jesus didn't reject Peter's claim. He merely topped it when he said, no, I chose you. At least in this case, the choosing of Christ does not refer to salvation, but to his call, follow me. Now, not all who are called and who appear to believe have been chosen. And not every pretend believer is a Judas. Many are well-meaning churchgoers who behave like their Christian peers and are motivated by any number of reasons, but none of which are authentic faith. Sadly, they will one day stand before the Savior to hear a rebuke instead of a welcome. They may expect to be rewarded for their acts of good service, but we are saved by grace and not by works. I pray that's not anyone in here this morning. Look at chapter 7, verse 1 with me. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. You've heard of people having a food fight? Well, we could call chapter 7 a feast fight. John 7 has three different time divisions. Before the feast, in verses 1 through 10, in the midst of the feast, verses 11 through 36, and on the last day of the feast, verses 37 through 52. The responses during each of those periods can be characterized also by three words. Disbelief, debate, and division. And it occurs between the siblings, the celebrants, and the Sanhedrin. Now we know from chapter 6, verse 4, that the events of that time occurred at the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover takes place each year in April. And the Feast of Tabernacles takes place somewhere around late September. So in between this time is about six months that we aren't really given any information on what has been happening. Now, the Jews celebrated three festivals that all males in Israel were required to attend. They were Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Each festival served to remind the Jewish people of something their forebears had learned about the Lord through a particular experience. The Feast of Tabernacles, held during harvest time, reminded the Hebrew people of their ancestors' exodus from Egypt their wilderness wandering, and their in-gathering finally into the promised land. 
This feast would be like us combining Thanksgiving, Independence Day, and New Year's Eve all rolled up into one. But during this feast, even if you owned a beautiful home, for one week during that feast, you and your family would vacate your home and build this little lean-to out of sticks and branches. And they would always be careful to not make it so tight in terms of the roof that you couldn't see the stars. And so they would lie down underneath it at night and they would all look up through those sticks and they would see the stars and then the children would ask, why are we leaving our house to live underneath these sticks? The father would then explain to them, this is the way our forefathers lived for 40 years as they wandered through the wilderness. And God was faithful to our people through that entire time. And he will also be faithful to us. It is interesting that the Greek word translating walked in verse 1 is in the perfect tense denoting continual action. Thus, although the people had walked away from him, Jesus, it says, continued to walk in their region. So too. When you talk to people who don't respond to the gospel, there comes a point when you may have to let them go, even as Jesus did. But like Jesus, continue to walk in their region. Be available to them should they have a change of heart, should the Spirit work to draw them into the kingdom. Just before this, Jesus had concluded his work in Galilee. He had been there for some time and had met with initial success. Nevertheless, as the true nature of his teaching became known and his claims became understood, the crowds that had once followed him gradually began to drift away. Jesus was therefore unwilling to conduct his life and ministry openly there. Why? Because the time was not right in God's plan for the events that would lead up to his death. Now, he was not, of course, unwilling to die, for that is the reason why he came into the world. He was simply, at this point, walking in prudency. Verse 3, please. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. We know that Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters, which really strains the belief that Mary was a perpetual virgin. After Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had normal marital relations, and it produced some other kids. But Joseph and Mary had just one perfect kid. Can you imagine having Jesus as your older brother? How would you like to grow up with a sibling who never even got one beating? Not only that, he never even sinned once. On the refrigerator by his name, there was nothing but gold stars. Thus, his brothers always didn't like him. It was like vacation Bible school every day at their house. Now, it is very likely that his brothers knew that Jesus and themselves didn't share the same father. 
And I have to wonder if they scoffed at the idea of an immaculate conception. I wonder, did they just consider it a family fable or some kind of scandal followed by a cover-up? Worse than that, we know from other passages that his brothers were pretty sure that Jesus had went crazy. In fact, they once went to try to bring him back to perhaps a well-padded room with nothing sharp in it where he couldn't hurt himself. At that time, his disciples told Jesus, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to talk to you. But apparently, his family was having trouble with a local tabloid journalist. As the King James puts it, they cannot get to him for the press. For the press. Their final challenge, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, reveals their doubt and their unbelief. The word if foreshadows the mocking unbelief that Jesus faced on the cross, and it is also reminiscent of Satan's challenge during Christ's temptation. Unlike Jesus, they would face no hostility at Jerusalem from the Jewish authorities. The world could not hate them since they were part of it, and the world always loves its own. But the world, as Jesus reminded his brothers, hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Since it is controlled by Satan, the activities and priorities of this world are inherently sinful. When believers testify against this world and confront its wickedness, like Jesus did, they will arouse its antagonism and its hatred. Now, this suggestion, of course, comes from hearts that are blinded by unbelief. The unbelief of his brothers had been prophesied in Psalm 69, verse 8, which, speaking of Jesus, we are told, I have become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. It is interesting, however, that by the time we get to the book of Acts, following the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we see those 120 believers in the upper room. And as you get to the end of the list of people, Luke mentions that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there along with his brothers. So we see that eventually they came around and believed that their brother was indeed the Messiah. Verse 6, please. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. So his brothers mockingly say, Hey there, Mr. Messiah. Why don't you go up to the feast and show the world who you really are? Jesus then says to them, Why didn't I think of that? You guys, I've underestimated you all these years. Hardly. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. The phrase, my time is not yet, is a phrase that is repeated over and over again in the Gospel of John. What this is communicating is that the life of Jesus and the things he did happened on a divine timetable. God was in charge of what was happening. 
Several times throughout John's narrative, Jesus speaks of his hour or his time. This refers to the moment in which his glory would be revealed to the world. The means of his glory would be suffering, which most of his followers do not understand. Even on the eve of his arrest and crucifixion. Secular Greek literature and the Greek translation of the Old Testament use this term to indicate a decisive moment in which one era gives way to another. For example, one might say, when the South declared war, Lincoln's moment had arrived. As believers, it is ultra-critical that we understand and accept God's timing. This often means practicing delayed gratification in regards to some of the things of this world. And sometimes the, what we long for will only be embraced fully in eternity. Otherwise, we can become slaves to our worldly passions. Case in point. One of the biblical words for worldliness is profane. We're told in Hebrews that Esau was a profane person. Why? Esau was profane because of this. If you know the story, Esau and Jacob were brothers. Esau was the older brother, so Esau had the birthright. That means Esau was going to inherit everything. One day Esau came in after a long, hard hunting trip, and he was famished. He smelled this great stew that Jacob was making. He sat down and said, give me some of that stew. Jacob said, okay, if you give me your birthright. If you just completely give to me your rights to the inheritance of our father, I will give you some soup. What does Esau say? What good is my inheritance? What good is the future if I'm going to die from hunger. Now this, of course, is an exaggeration. But then again, worldly people always exaggerate the importance of the now. We could hear them say, what good is tomorrow if I'm famished today? I have my needs. I have my urges. I have my desires. I have to be fulfilled right now. There is a place in Romans 13 where the Apostle Paul says, The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, he says, wake up. It's high time to wake up out of sleep. What he is saying is, worldliness is a kind of sleepiness. Think about it. When you're asleep, you're only attending to your dreams. But you're unaware of what's really happening truly around you. What is Paul saying? He is saying, wake up to what's truly important in life. Notice verse 7 with me. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. The verses that are here are a little bit startling, especially what Jesus says in verse 7 where he says, the world cannot hate me, or can I hate you, but it hates me. Now, why should we study this? 
We should study it for this reason. Jesus is saying there is an inevitable head-on collision between himself and the world. Therefore, between anyone who follows him also and the world. We have to understand this so we are not surprised when it does happen. We also have to understand this so we can question ourselves. For if there is never a head-on collision between the world's values and our values, we have to ask ourselves, are we really and truly following him? Now, even more bizarre is this world is so blinded by evil that there are actually people today who say that evil doesn't even really exist, despite much evidence to the contrary. Charles Lindbergh became the first person to complete a nonstop solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean. But Lindbergh and his wife were struck with tragedy when their first child was kidnapped and then murdered. The kidnapping garnered the attention of the entire nation and was called the crime of the century. But before police captured the actual killer, more than 200 people confessed to the crime. Such is the desire for attention, even bad attention. Another infamy seeker was the BTK killer, which stood for bind, torture, and kill. He murdered at least 10 people from 1974 to 1991. But the BT killer wasn't getting the attention that he craved. So in 1978, he wrote a letter to Wichita's TV station, which read, how many do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper or some national attention? I think we have evil in our world. Okay, you may be thinking, I can't agree that there is evil on the lunatic fringe. But most people are basically good and decent people who care for others. And many people can bring up specific examples of good humans. Like, what about grandma? Sure, she isn't a Christian, but she volunteers at the community center and she makes chocolate chip cookies for the kids on her street. Isn't she a good person? But that doesn't make her a good person. That makes her a nice person. After all, we can be certain there are certain KKK grandmas who help white seniors and bake chocolate chip cookies for only the white kids in their neighborhoods. Sure there are, but that doesn't make them good in the way that God describes goodness. Now, Gandhi is most often cited as the example of a good non-Christian. But Gandhi wasn't good. Again, doing a good, or doing a good deed or even a lot of good deeds doesn't make someone a good person in the eyes of God. Gandhi may have done some good things, but most people don't know that he often went to bed naked with his two nieces or other girls often at the same time and even married women. He said he did this to test his resistance. It isn't clear how often his resistance held firm. 
So niceness isn't goodness. Lending money or possessions to those who can lend to us, smiling at neighbors and baking cookies, doesn't make one good in the biblical sense. And really, one horrifying realization about murderers is that they can otherwise be very nice. For instance, Adolf Eichmann, the administrator at Auschwitz, by all accounts was a good family man who never killed anyone with his own hands. Some people can be nice until it really costs them something. But if push comes to shove, people will freak out and start doing things like buying up all the toilet paper without considering anybody else. Despite all that, in the world that we now live in, the only thing considered evil is calling evil, evil. In the same way in the church, the only heresy is calling heresy, heresy. But not only did Jesus say there was such a thing as evil, he also applied it to this world. Can you imagine the noise? Jesus could have said to his brothers, you guys stand for everything. Nobody dislikes you. You don't turn the light on anybody's sin. Like Teddy Roosevelt once said, you guys live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory or defeat. But in terms of making an eternal difference, you're absolutely useless. You are, in the words of Isaiah, dogs that have forgotten how to bark. To summarize the late Haddon Robinson, in the past, we as American Christians always had the home field advantage. We knew that in the crowd, there were some from the other team who were opposed to us, but the larger stadium crowd was either on our side or at least indifferent to our witness as Christians. All that has changed. Now we play all of our games on the enemy's turf. Now a minority is on our side, but the wider culture sits in the stands shouting hateful names at us and rejoicing at our losses. This sure isn't a very encouraging sermon, Pastor Bill. Part of the pastor's responsibility is not only to encourage and uplift, but to also give warnings. This is what I'm doing this morning. Persecution for standing for Christ has been the order of the day from the very beginning. Back in the 1600s, evangelist George Whitfield wrote this in his diary. I was honored today with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of a dead cat thrown at me. Here's the irony, though. The censorers, who are already too ready to deny freedom to those who disagree with them, are perceived by our culture as being tolerant, whereas those who express any differing views are now considered intolerant. In other words, the philosophy of this culture is to preach tolerance but practice intolerance against anyone who has the courage to express an opposing point of view. So as we finish up this morning, just know, if you are a believer, you're going to become more and more unpopular as the end approaches 
but the end will be glorious. Listen to how it's described in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, because the things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen, well, those are eternal. Chrysostom was a preacher in what is today Istanbul. He was run out of town and hounded by the authorities because they detested his preaching against the abuse of wealth and power. His people wanted to defend their pastor, so they took up sticks and stones, but of course, they were no match for the growing opposition. Probably just like today, we feel powerless in the wake of our cultural opposition. Nevertheless, the congregation gathered in the church for his last sermon before he was exiled to go. Let me give you a paragraph of what he said. Numerous are the waves, and great the tossing of the sea. But we have no fear of going down, for we stand upon the rock. Let the ocean rage as it will, it is powerless to break the rock. Let the waves roll, they cannot sink the Christ. Tell me, what should we fear? Death? To me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Is it exile perchance? The earth is the Lord, and the fullness thereof. Is it confiscation of property? We brought nothing into this world, and it's clear we can take nothing away with us. Then he says, I despise what the world fears and hold its good things in derision. I do not fear poverty, nor do I desire riches. I'm not afraid of death. I do not pray to live if it be not for your good. This is why I speak of now what is taking place and exhort your charity to be of good cheer. I don't know about you this morning, but that is the kind of witness that I want to have. So help me, God. Well, next week, I'm going to step away from the Gospel of John and bring us a message I think we all need to hear, including me. I will be speaking from the topic, Would the Apostle Paul Wear a Face Mask? (laughs) Father, we do thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that it would find fertile hearts today. Lord, we need you, and everyone needs you more and more as the time draws to a close. We are, Lord, in enemy territory. We are not the good guys anymore. We are those that they look at with derision and hate. Let us stand and be the light, for that is what you have called us to do. We ask in Christ's name, amen.